Well, I beg your indulgence just a little bit this morning as I am still recovering from a cold. Mary also is a little sick, which is why Perry stepped in for her today. So you see that the plague is making its way through the West office, but we're all doing okay. There is something so peaceful and almost mesmerizing about watching falling snow. For a while yesterday morning, it was coming down in big, fat flakes, the kind of snow you see in movies, blanketing the world in hushed splendor. It gives that feeling to me at least of newness, of possibility, of the beauty hidden in the world around you. This year, I had the particular joy of seeing the the snow through my daughter Marcella's two-year-old eyes, who ran back and forth to the window, awed by this strange rain pouring down from the sky. I also saw the snow this weekend through Ralph Waldo Emerson's eyes. Emerson, a one-time Unitarian minister and all-time American essayist, talks about a snowstorm in one of his most famous sermons. That sermon and address really was was called the Divinity School Address. And it was just that given to the graduating class at Harvard Divinity School, where most of the young men were heading off to become Unitarian ministers. Unfortunately, Emerson's opinion of ministers, and especially of the kind of preaching they usually did, was not very high. He spoke in the address about going to church in the middle of just such a morning as we had yesterday. A snowstorm was falling around us, he wrote. The snowstorm was real, the preacher merely spectral. And the eye felt the sad contrast in looking at him and then out of the window behind him into the beautiful meteor of the snow. He had lived in vain. He had no one word intimating that he had laughed or wept, was married or in love, had been commended or cheated or chagrined. The capital secret of his profession, namely to convert life into truth, he had not learned. Now isn't that the encouraging kind of thing you'd like to hear at your graduation? As you might imagine, Emerson was not asked to deliver another such address. And indeed, he soon left the ministry and pursued a career as a writer and lecturer. There are varying accounts for why exactly he left his original vocation. Possibly it was over theological differences. Possibly because he didn't want to do some of the pastoral care that was expected of him. Possibly simply because he wasn't that great a minister. He was certainly, however, a great thinker and one that influenced other American theologians and philosophers in rather dramatic ways, including our own movement's founder, Felix Adler. But first, a little more about Emerson and why we're talking about him today. It's not just about the snowstorm. Emerson is largely seen as the father of transcendentalism, a religious movement in the mid-19th century that emphasized the ability of every person to have 
transcendent experiences, to feel a connection with the world based on their intuitive religious natures and not on doctrine or church teachings. Modern Unitarian Universalists like to claim transcendentalism as very much part of their own movement, but actually it started as a protest against the Unitarianism of the time, which was still a kind of liberal Christianity with formulas and formality. Emerson advocated what he called a lifting of the veil, declaring that all people could experience the divine, could experience connection with the world without some stuffy old minister telling them how. Emerson also believed in something he called the oversoul, the idea of a connecting spark that linked all people, all nature, and that resided inside each one of us. This is often referred to as the divine spark or a divine spark, and it's an idea that resonates through a number of religious traditions. Emerson himself was influenced by his study of Quakers as well as Eastern traditions. At this time, you might remember, Eastern religious traditions were just beginning to be studied in the West, and we can see the connections easily enough. Our story this morning with its namaste greeting helps us. Namaste, a Sanskrit word, is translated in various ways, but what I hear most often is the light in me greets the light in you, or the divine in me greets the divine in you. So all of these concepts and more were floating around in Ralph Waldo Emerson's mind and his heart as he explored his own understanding of a divine spark, an oversoul. And although Emerson's transcendentalism was a protest movement against Unitarianism, it also had, as most protest movements do, some real links to more traditional Unitarian values and beliefs. The divine spark concept in particular can be related to Unitarianism's understanding of human nature as inherently worthy, of human beings as holding the potential to become good. This idea was one of the most radical that early American Unitarianism posited, led by William Ellery Channing and others who rejected the idea of original sin and taught instead that all people were born with possibility, with a spark of divinity and of humanity inside them. It's right about now that I have a confession to make. As many of you know, I grew up Unitarian Universalist. That, however, is not the confession. I feel fine about that. <laughs> Growing up UU, you are really required to believe very little. There's a strong encouragement to find your own truth. I was, however, appropriately schooled in the highlights of early Unitarianism and Universalism. And of course, Emerson made a shining appearance, having been by now reclaimed by UUs as their own prophet of natural religion, their star of transcendentalism. So here's the confession. I could take him or leave him. Emerson, I mean, some of what he says is lovely. He speaks especially eloquently about nature. But as I read more and more Emerson through my training in seminary, I found that he was just a little too lonely for me. 
Because he believes so strongly that the transcendent experience is available to anyone, anywhere, he has a tendency to go running off to mountains or marshes and find his moments there, far from the annoying influence of, I don't know, other people. Indeed, Emerson was a proponent of what came to be called self-culture, a movement which encouraged people to grow their souls, to start with that spark within and build it, living the good life and the right life. It was a time, remember, of great optimism about humanity, and self-culture took that optimism and focused it on the individual, helping each person to become more fully realized versions of their best selves. Now, it's not that I want to be a less fully realized version of my best self. It's just that it all gets to be a little too much self for me. Enter Felix Adler. Adler, who founded our movement in 1876, was a reader and student of Emerson, at one time quite taken with his work. They were both members and indeed leaders of the Free Religious Association. And in fact, Adler named his first child, born in 1882, Waldo, after the man he admired. But Adler eventually became dissatisfied with that very same focus on self, in self-culture, and in instead started ethical culture, a movement that sought to take the understanding of the worth of every person, the spark inside each of us, and add to it a strong push toward relational being, toward relationship. We can see, though, the influence in Adler's writing and his work of Emerson's thought. In an address in 1894 called The Penalties of Sin, <laughs> Adler said, There is a voice within us which says, I cannot die. It is the voice of our better self. There is a divine spark within us which cannot be extinguished. We need only to open our eyes to see it. Even with this sense of our better self, though, Adler's work is woven through with an emphasis on others, on our connection to and interdependence with all those other better selves out there. Adler, at his most metaphysical, his most theological, really, described a concept he called the ethical manifold which is essentially an image for the connection of all souls, all ethical agents, to each other. He believed that we were only fully ourselves when we were connected to others. In other words, that all the self-culture in the world wouldn't really make us the most realized versions of ourselves. We needed ethical culture, relational culture, to truly become ourselves. That divine spark is only lit, or at least it shines most brightly when it is reflected back to us by our friend. Now this is the part of the platform where I stop and look around to see if any of you have actually fallen out of your seats, lost to the shock of hearing me say divine about 45 times in the last 10 minutes. If your neighbor has fallen out of their seat, please help them up. Give them a reassuring pat as we explore a little bit together. 
ethical culture as it exists today is often called a non-theistic religion, a movement that, like some forms of Buddhism or like Confucianism, doesn't try to answer questions about God, but instead focuses on how we are together, how we lived in this world. Individual members of this ethical society and others have their own spiritual journeys and beliefs that they may share in conversation or may hold privately in their hearts. The range is wide, and we are richer for it. Indeed, in deepening circles and at colloquy, in conversations during coffee hour and at neighborhood potlucks, we are made stronger by the diversity of feeling, belief, ideas, and passions that people carry with them. On Sunday mornings, though, we come together around our shared ideals, our shared values, and we generally do so in language that resonates for the largest group of people in the room. I see this as finding a way to welcome in everyone, to focus on what unites us, one of the great hopes of ethical culture's founding, a religion with diversity in creed but unanimity in deed. This doesn't mean, though, that there is no place for language that speaks of the deep, the profound, the religious. Adler used this language, as you've heard, perhaps for the same reason that I sometimes do, because if we leave all the powerful words to those who define them in ways that exclude or limit, that create barriers rather than breaking them down, then we are seeding the ground that is ours religiously to claim. And the world, I think, is poorer for it. Now, this doesn't mean that I think we ought to look and sound just like a more conservative religious tradition. We have our own words and our own ways of expressing what we feel most deeply. Unlike Adler, I'm not likely to share an address called The Penalties of Sin, it's tempting, isn't it? <laughs> but I do want to invite us to think about this divine spark idea. It resonates so well, for me at least, with the concept of inherent worth, and one that is shared by liberal religion, religious movements around the world, as well as being perhaps the most important idea of ethical culture. For a little humanistic grounding in this conversation, I turn to Ed Erickson, the leader of this society in the 1960s and then the New York Society, a one-time president of the American Ethical Union and still a leading humanist voice. In his work, The Humanist Way, Erickson writes that many who leave the more traditional religions of their youth, quote, discover that they still retain feelings of awe, reverence, and a sense of the sacred. Erickson points in his book to the work of theologian Henry Nelson Wyman, who is a favorite of mine, who, as Erickson writes, called this life-giving power the creative good, which insofar as it remains always open to ever greater creative interchange, cannot become destructive the only power accessible to human life of which this can be said without qualification. Wyman called this creative interchange 
this life-giving power, God, in his own works. But he made it clear that it need not hold that name to hold that power. We spoke a little bit about the Eastern traditions that influenced Emerson, and I found a tiny piece from the Bhagavad Gita, one of the central Hindu scriptures. It goes, I am the self that dwells in the heart of every mortal creature. I am the beginning, the lifespan, and the end of all. I am the radiant sun among the light givers. I am the mind. I am consciousness in the living. Although in its context these words hold a connection to a, div a divinity that might not ring quite true for all of us, I love the way it gets at that spark, that innerness of all things. I have often liked, too, the way the Quakers refer to this spark within, which they most often speak about in images of light. A Quaker who wants to pray for you might say that they will hold you in the light. And Quakers work together as a community is often about discerning the light and following where that light leads. Quaker communities vary widely in how strongly Christian they seem. And there are Quakers whose understanding of the light we might see as distinctly humanistic, rooted in a deep appreciation for the worth of each person, which after all is the core humanist value, language aside. So for me, I suppose this idea of the divine spark is resonant with our non-theistic approach. It speaks to that precious, inviolable something that lives inside each of us. It need not be limited to humans, but can be seen animating every living thing. I am no scientist, but I inherited from my father a love for and wonder of the natural world, from the microscopic to the unimaginably huge. I see that divine spark, that animating light around me in the potential for growth, the potential for creativity that lives in each piece of this amazing world. The language of divine spark may or may not resonate for you, but I hope you can begin to see the idea behind the words. They are asking us to recognize the depth of who we are, the soul that keeps us from being only a collection of cells, even if we believe that it is that very collection of cells, cells that together create that soul. And whatever we call it, or however we understand it, it begs to be recognized in ourselves, in each other. Adler's great idea in ethical culture is that we cannot truly recognize it alone, that we need each other to see the spark, to respond to it, to coax it to burn yet more brightly. I have had one religious revelation in my life. It happened a few years ago in a Starbucks. Most people, I think, have these moments while hiking up a mountain or visiting an ancient ruin. I was ordering a chai latte. I can't quite tell you what happened that day. 
I was simply overwhelmed with a sense of connection, a sense that each person was deeply loved, deeply important, not just to the Starbucks barista, but to the world, to each other, to whatever connected us in this wild and beautiful life. I had an overwhelming desire to tell them, to stop them on their way out the door and let them know that they were incredibly precious to me. I didn't, which was probably better <laughs> for my overall standing in the Starbucks that day as an emotionally stable and socially acceptable person. But I wonder sometimes what would have happened if I had let everyone know. If we all let everyone know as often as we possibly can. Social acceptability, after all, seems a minor thing when compared to universal acceptability, which is really what we are saying when we tell someone they are precious, that they are worthy, that they belong in this world. This is why I love the Namaste greeting, which is used across religious traditions in a number of parts of the world. Nepal is in our story this morning, Tibet, India, throughout South Asia. In our story, the mother tells her daughter, when you say namaste, try to see the special spark of light that shines within every person's heart. I think again of Adler's words about this same light. There is a divine spark within us which cannot be extinguished. We need only to open our eyes to see it. How would the world look different, I wonder, if we saw that spark, that light in each other every day? If we looked for it and searched it out, fanned the flames and cupped our hands around it if it flickered low. This is the kind of religious work that transcends language, that needs, in fact, no words. It is the work of being human, the work of humanism in the very best understanding of the tradition. Whatever language you use to recognize it, whatever gesture conveys your care and respect, I invite you to find a way to tell someone else that you see in them the divine spark, the light, the worth that they carry. Tell your children, tell your elders, tell each other and tell yourself. This is our work. We humanists, we non-theists, we people of faith, we human beings. Let us do that work with joy and with great love.